James Mill has written seven chapters on Hindus in his first volume, History of British India. And my contention is that you would be hard-pressed to find one positive representation on Hindus and Indians in that particular book. His agenda was very clear. It was basically to show what the Britishers needed to civilize the Hindus. The moment the discussion ends on the Harappan civilization and the moment, as I mentioned earlier, Hinduism is mentioned, caste becomes the defining feature. Everything else is thrown to the wind. No idea of oneness, no idea of Brahm, no possibility of uniting with Brahm. This discourse has been internalized in conscious and unconscious ways by the mainstream academicians to such an extent that Indians are not taken seriously with respect to the changes that they want to bring about in their history. The moment you want to bring about a change in history, all kind of negative epithets will be slapped on you. Right-wing Hindutva, revisionist, and so on and so forth. It happens in India, it happens everywhere. Now, why is it, why is it that we are not given the right to revise our own history? So before I get into the content of the topic, I want to talk a little bit about the structure in the United States which actually determines the framework of education. So you have California legislature which basically determines content standards for school textbooks. And once the content standards have been determined, then those content standards are given to California Department of Education. California Department of Education sets up what is called Instructional Quality Commission or IQC. And IQC in conversation with teachers, students and professors determines what is known as framework. That framework is given to publishers. Publishers create textbooks out of that framework and uh, Instructional Quality Commission sets up committees for the textbooks to be reviewed. Once the textbooks are approved by the committees, then they become available for adoption by schools at various school districts. So this is the format which is followed in California. And uh, California basically takes the lead in the sense that whatever it does in terms of setting up the framework is used by all other states in the United States. IQC meets every 10 years to revise the framework. And when they revise the framework, they take inputs from professors, teachers, students, parents, 
uh, community leaders and so on and so forth. The last time that the framework was revised, that was uh, between 2015 and 2017. And I'm sure that you must have come to know through reports in the newspapers that substantial number of Indian Americans were up in arms with regards to bringing about change within the, uh, within the curriculum or the framework. And I'm going to talk about the problems in the framework now after that, uh, after I've given this basic framework in which framework is created. I also want to talk a little bit about my involvement with this project. I got involved with this in about uh, 2016. And the reason was that a group of faculty members who teach in various universities in the United States, uh, in South Asia departments, got together and petitioned the um, IQC that India should be replaced with South Asia and Hinduism should be replaced with religions of South Asia. I found these recommendations extremely problematic and I will go into the reasons why I did. And that was the beginning of my journey into involvement with this project. So the first thing that I did was that I wrote a letter to IQC saying why India should not be replaced with South Asia. And what I did was that I looked into the historical accounts of people who will not be considered Indians, primarily because they have represented India as a geographical entity since antiquity. And for that, I looked into the records of the Greek and Roman historians primarily. We are quite familiar with this fact that Megasthenes wrote Indica, and Indica was the ancient name or the ancient Greek name for India. But that's <clears throat> just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, Herodotus was considered the father of modern history, also wrote about India and mentioned India as such, as Antica. And in his accounts, he basically mentions uh, Darius the first who had invaded India and he had brought India under his suzerainty. And uh, India was basically uh, paying the suzerainty dues to uh, Darius. And that was the context in which he had mentioned India. <clears throat> now, when Darius was in power, he had commissioned a man by the name of Skylax, who had um, done some survey around the river Indus. And he had written about it. And in his accounts also, he mentions India as one geographical unity. Fast forward, you come to the writing of Eratosthenes, Orion, 
Strabo, Pliny the Elder, uh, Diodorus, all these people are talking about India as one geographical unit. Now, when you replace India with South Asia, what you are doing is that you are essentially removing history of shared mankind, particularly when you are mentioning certain ancient civilizations like Rome, Greece, China, and so on and so forth with their original names, then it is improper that you remove India and introduce South Asia there. In a certain sense, you are erasing the civilizational existence of India also. So this was the content of the letter that I wrote to IQC. And at that point in time, I started collaborating with another individual who runs a foundation by the name of Hindupedia. And another scholar, you may be familiar with his name, Pamsi Juluri. And in togetherness, we came up uh, with a petition called Scholars for People. And uh, we wrote a petition and we put it on the web. And worldwide, we generated about 27,000 signatures requesting that India should not be replaced with South Asia. Fortunately, that part of the struggle was won by us. IQC decided against uh, substituting South Asia with India. And at that point in time, I started critically examining the discourse which is there in framework and textbooks. And I could very clearly see that it was the colonial discourse which had been un unleashed on India uh, beginning 19th century, which was being represented in politically correct and sanitized forms. This was primarily because of my uh, familiarity with this book called History of British India by James Mill. James Mill has written seven chapters on Hindus in his first volume, History of British India. And my contention is that you would be hard-pressed to find one positive representation on Hindus and Indians in that particular book. His agenda was very clear. It was basically to show how Hindus were civilized and what the Britishers needed to civilize the Hindus. And people who are familiar with the Orientalist discourse and the analysis of the Orientalist discourse, uh, you would also know that the process of creating the other and showing the other as uncivilized and savage was something which the Europeans did on all the non-Europeans. And that was one of the ways in which they brought the non-Europeans under their control, their control. At that point in time, we also put together a coalition of scholars. And I started talking about the various Orientalist tropes or colonial tropes which were present in these writings. But unfortunately, I found a certain 
timidity among the scholars and they were not willing to call spade a spade. And the end result was that we were able to bring about certain changes within the framework. But the framework in its current version basically remains quite faulty. There were organizations who claimed victory. They said that we have been able to bring about changes, we have been able to bring about reformation. But in my assessment, that hasn't really happened. The needle has moved only a little. And that is not much if we really compare it with the framework which was put in existence in 2006-2007. So what I did was that I wrote another letter to IQC. And this time, instead of focusing on the content, because we saw that despite the fact that there were many representations given to IQC with regards to bringing about changes in the content based on evidence that the shift was not occurring, that I began to point out that there were education code violations in the framework. Now there are two important codes uh, determined by the Supreme Court of the United States which the state departments of education are supposed to follow. One of them pertains to <coughs> creating positive content on religion. No material which is created or which is represented in the textbooks should adversely reflect on any religion, sexual orientation, nationality, ethnicity, and so on and so forth. They are very, very clear about it. The second one is that by going through the materials, the students should be able to have a feeling of self-worth. Um, they should remain secure in their religion. And they should not be indoctrinated against the religion in which they are being raised. Now, interestingly, when you go through the content, what you find is that both of these are being violated. And what is the reason? The reason is that Hinduism is created within the framework of hierarchy and oppression. And incidentally, caste becomes the representative factor. So the moment the framework begins to talk about Hinduism, they bring caste into equation. And once they begin to talk about caste, they begin to talk about hierarchy and oppression. And everything about Hinduism, incidentally, is defined through that prism. It includes dharma. When they are talking about dharma, instead of going into the meaning, using the root word, they define dharma exclusively in terms of Varnashram dharma. Or even if they are talking about Mahabharata, for instance, 
they state that Krishna is exhorting Arjuna to follow his Varnashram dharma, dharma, which is about, which is the dharma of a Kshatriya. Everything else within the Gita, everything else which the Hindus have held dear for an extended period of time is basically thrown to the wind. You, there's no discussion on Brahm, there's no discussion on the psycho-spiritual practices, there's nothing about becoming one with divinity, no discourse on devotion. Caste and Jati, that becomes the central divining feature. When you look into the discussions on the Harappan culture, what you find is that the archaic term Indus Valley Civilization is still being in use. This is despite the fact that in the last 50 years, umpteen cities have been found on River Saraswati. Prominent cities such as Lothal, Dholavira, Kalibangan, Rakhigadi have been excavated and numerous papers have been presented in international fora. None of those are mentioned. And the bigger extent than what is our That's correct. That is correct. Mohanjadaro and Harappa are mentioned. And the civilizational continuity, which many professors, for instance, uh, Lal, and even uh, American professors like Jim Schaefer and Diane Lichtenstein, have pointed out that there is a continuity within the civilization that never gets mentioned. So, what you find is that they talk about a break within the Indian civilization. They talk about the Harappan civilization and there's a, there's a stop. So, of course, you know, the earlier theory was that the Aryans came, they invaded, they, they defeated uh, the, the Harappans and they destroyed that civilization. And with, that, uh, with them, they brought the Vedas and Brahmanism began. Brahmanism mixed with other native traditions and through that Hinduism was born. And by the time, again, the caste had already been formulated and Hinduism is nothing but hierarchy, caste and oppression. That narrative, that narrative, you know, continues. So, <clears throat> when you look at, for instance, you know, the position of women, despite the fact that women were educated in ancient India, some of them are authors in the Vedas, none of these are mentioned. What you find is that it is emphasized that they did not have any property rights, even if they were educated, they were educated at home. Uh, <clears throat> The position of women in the Hindu society since antiquity has been very poor is something which gets explicitly or implicitly emphasized. Now all these connections, they can be found if you start going through the writings of James Mill. So what I have done today is that I have brought some writings 
some some of his quotes and i will go through those quotes and once the quotes have been outlined i think we will be in a good situation to connect you know how this discourse which i said is basically a politically correct and a sanitized version of the earlier discourse still in existence so the first one i have taken from hindus devoid of history or hindus destitute of history it goes something like this the wildness and inconsistency of the hindu sentiments evidently place them beyond sober limits of truth and history the offspring of a wild and ungoverned imagination they mark the state of a rude and credulous people whom the marvelous delights who cannot estimate the use of record of past events and whose imagination the real occurrences of life are too familiar to engage this people indeed are perfectly destitute of historical records their ancient literature affords not a single production to which the historical character belongs the works in which the miraculous transactions of former times are described are poems i'll stop here let us connect with what is going on with respect to representation of history in mainstream academia and by and when i say mainstream academia i am not even saying united states you know this is going around everywhere the very fact that lot of archaeologists and hist- and historians have pointed out that the aryan invasion did not happen in fact there is very little evidence even for the politically correct version of the aryan invasion theory which is the aryan uh, migration theory despite that we still find the mention of aryan in the migration theory why is it that why why is this happening and my understanding is that this discourse has been internalized in conscious and unconscious ways by the mainstream academicians to such an extent that indians are not taken seriously with respect to the changes that they want to bring about in their history the moment you want to bring about a change in history all kind of negative epithets will be slapped on you right wing hindutva revisionists and so on and so forth it happens in india it happens everywhere now why is it why is it that we are not given the right to revise our own history where history is being revised in every part of the world we all understand that history is not a discipline which is static it has never remained static it is continuously changing it has been subject to revision but the revision which is rightfully ours is continually denied to us there has to be a reason there has to be a prejudice present somewhere and what i want to point out is that this prejudice has been established by this narrative which was put in place at some point in time and this narrative has been built upon for an extended period of time many different scholars have worked on the framework which was put together by james mill and what you what you experience at this point in time is that it has become a tradition it is a parampara and that parampara that tradition 
has explicit and implicit followers everywhere. Now, until unless that parampara is broken, or until unless we create an alternative for that, for that tradition, this is not going to change. And what I have come up with is that evidence is not going to be enough. A certain amount of deconstruction is extremely important. We have to look at what was written on us, about us, during the colonial times. And they have written dreams on us. That is part of the mainstream narrative. And it is conscious and unconscious. And we need to do a certain kind of archaeology at this point in time. So evidence, it's extremely important. A certain amount of critical deconstruction also is important. A lot of people have spent their lifetimes uh, garnering evidence in order to controvert some of the established theories. We have seen that things have not moved much. We need to do something else. What is politically correct at this point in time has to be made politically correct. We need to be very clear about this. We need to expose colonialism, orientalism and racism which has underlined this kind of approach. Now let me come to another quote. If we suppose that India began to be inhabited at a very early stage in the peopling of the world, its first inhabitations must have been few, ignorant and rude. Uncivilized and ignorant men transported in small numbers into an uninhabited country of boundless extent must wander for many ages before any improvement can take place. So with this quote, what is James Meal essentially establishing? What he is saying is that James Mill in History of British India. So what he is establishing is that the early Hindus were nomads. Now we all know that it was in the heydays of colonialism that the Aryan invasion theory was established. Aryans as nomads came from west of the Indian subcontinent, entered it, invaded it, demolished civilizations and continued their nomadic ways for some period of time, for a few more centuries before they started creating habitations. Now, in 1920s, when this theory had already been established, emerged the remains of Harappa and Mohenjadaro. These are massive pieces of evidence in that one could have easily said that the early Hindus may have been nomads, but that that was way early in prehistoric times, but even before 
the time was determined for the Aryans having invaded India, they had a massive civilization with wonderfully designed cities and that these people could not have been nomads. But this is not what happened. The Aryan invasion theory was morphed. The Harappans, they became the Dravidians and they were pushed to the south. Now let me continue with this quote. We find accordingly that all those nations whose history can be most depended upon trace themselves up to a period of rudeness. The families who, marred, who wandered into Greece, Italy and eastern regions of Europe were confessedly ignorant and barbarous. This book was published in 1817. At that point in time, the Aryan invasion theory had not been established. In fact, what was in place was that the, the Indians or the Hindus were the creators of civilization. India was the cradle of civilization and, the, and Sanskrit was the mother of all Indo-European languages. This was the theory which remained in use for about 50 years after William Jones had proposed it. So what I mean to say here is that it is basically because of discourse like this that despite the emergence of evidence that the, that the early Hindus close to prehistoric times could have been very civilized never got broken. Now let me move a little bit further. When we come to the second chapter of History of British India by James Mill, that is when he begins to talk about the classification of people. And that is when he begins entrenching this idea that Hinduism is nothing but oppression and hierarchy. And he is very explicit about this. What he says is that if people devise traditions which oppresses a majority of its own people, then it is essentially rude, brute, uncivilized, savage and so on and so forth. Now this is exactly what you see in textbooks in the United States at this point in time. The moment the discussion ends on the Harappan civilization and the moment, as I mentioned earlier, Hinduism is mentioned, caste becomes the defining feature. Everything else is thrown to the wind. No idea of oneness, no idea of Brahm, no possibility of uniting with Brahm. The very essential ideas that we have today is that there are many different ways of uniting with the divine. We pride ourselves uh, at the fact that we are essentially diverse, diverse and plural. None of those are mentioned. So any of the things that has a positive connotation as far as our civilization is concerned does not really get mentioned. So I'm going through two quotes by James Mill on this. The priesthood is generally found to usurp the greatest authority 
in the lowest state of society. It is only in rude and ignorant times that men are so overwhelmed with the power of superstition as to pay unbounded veneration and obedience to those who artfully close themselves with the terrors of religion. The Brahmins among the Hindus have acquired and maintained an authority more exalted, more commanding and extensive than the, than the priests have been able to engross among any other portion of mankind. Now this is just the beginning. The evil Brahmana theory, which is highly rampant in mainstream discourse today, also finds its beginning over here. The evil Brahmanas creating a system where they would ascribe greatest privileges to themselves and oppress others is something which gets continually repeated throughout this particular book. I want to add something more over here. This book was financed by East India Company. It was around 1805-1806 that the deal was made between James Mill and East India Company. And he was on payrolls of East India Company till the time he was doing research and involved in the publication of the book. And after the book was published, he actually became an employee of the East India Company. Now, this book was also used to train the British civil servants who were functioning in India. It remained their official book for a very long period of time. The subsequent books on history that got published from Oxford and Cambridge built themselves on this discourse. And when the Britishers created institutions over here in India, the universities, this discourse was pumped into that system. And because after independence, we did not critically examine this discourse and the very fact that this discourse got appropriated by the leftists, that it continues. Nobody questions in the, main, in the mainstream whether the Brahmins were oppressive or not. And all that we need to do is basically pick up the Dharmashastras and look at what the Brahmins were supposed to be doing. And if you look at the Dharmashastras, there were only six duties or six responsibilities that the Brahmins had. What were those? Study and teach. Take alms and give alms. Perform yajna and see to it that the yajnas are performed. These are the only six duties that the Brahmins had. Where is the oppression that you find? What I'm saying is that because we did not deconstruct this discourse, <clears throat> you know, the way I like to put it is, Kisine ka hamko agar ke aapka kaan kawa leker ke gaya. Hamne apna kaan chhod karke, ham kawa ke piche bhaage, ke kawa hamara kaan leker ke gaya ya nahi gaya. All that we needed to do was step back 
take up the texts which had been written and there are numerous texts look into how our own traditions our own society our own sociology was devised and basically deconstructed this discourse and what would happen in the pro- what would have happened in the process is that an alternative reality was would have emerged and we would have been closer to that reality it is not that we should have accepted that reality it's not that whatever system was created in the ancient times was perfect and we needed to continue with that i'm definitely not suggesting that but whatever reformation or reform we would have come up with that would have been based on knowledge the knowledge of our own traditions not on the knowledge which had been created by others particularly by people who had an explicit agenda to control us and control us till perpetuity it's a very old roman mantra that if you want to bring a culture <clears throat> or a people into subjugation what you need to do is basically destroy their culture and what was being done through these writings was that the culture was being destroyed but it is very very unfortunate that we never critically examined it let me lead, <coughs> let me uh, move a little bit further among the hindus according to the asiatic model the government was monarchic monarchical and with the usual exception of religion and its ministers absolute so what is saying is that our system of governance was absolutely absolute oppression again was the name of the game how does this get reflected in the textbooks this happens when they describe ashoka ashoka goes to kalinga war experiences butchery and massive violence has a change of heart and when he has a change of heart he engages in main in various activities that will basically make him a good king he builds hospitals roads engages in different civic activities and so on and so forth it is as if the existent dominant system of thought would not have inspired ashoka to engage in these civic activities if you pick up arthashastra and when you go into the duties of the kings you find that ashoka was doing exactly what is mentioned in the arthashastra of kautilya which was written just two generations ago but this aspect is never ad- is never uh, written about and the reason why it is not written about is because it is accepted that the hindus cannot create any other system other than an absolutist system and again i would say that the beginnings or the genesis of this kind of discourse lies 
and James Mill. The condition of women is one of the most remarkable circumstances in the manners of nations. Among rude people, the women are generally degraded. Among civilized, they are exalted. In the barbarian, the passion of sex is a brutal impulse which infuses no tenderness and his undisciplined nature leads him to abuse his power over every creature that is weaker than himself. The history of uncultivated nations uniformly represents the women in a state of abject slavery from which they slowly emerge as civilization advances. In such a state of society, property is an advantage which it may naturally be supposed that the degraded sex are by no means permitted to enjoy. Being condemned to severe and perpetual labor, they are themselves regarded as useful property. This is what James Mill writes. And what the contemporary discourse says, that in ancient India, women had no right to property. Of course, they are not writing that the Hindus or ancient Indians were uncivilized and brute people. That would be absolutely politically incorrect. The political incorrectness of this discourse is basically buried. But the parameters through which the Hindus were shown to be civilized and brute still continues. Being condemned to, to severe and perpetual labor, they are themselves regarded as useful property. Nothing can exceed the habitual contempt which the Hindus entertain for their women. Hardly are they ever mentioned in their laws or other books, but as wretches of the most base and vicious inclinations, or whose nature no virtuous or useful qualities can be engrafted. The Indians and Hindus can continue to write reams that portions of the Vedas have been written by women. They can continue to say that they were Rishikas. And in fact, if you look at Arthashastra, you will find that there were women hermits as well. So it is not that sannyasa was, ex was, was, <coughs> was exclusive to men. It was available to women as well. They could very well exercise that, that right, if we use contemporary language at this point in time. How do you find this? The punishments against the violators of women, of, uh, women hermits was <coughs> extremely harsh in the Arthashastra. That is the evidence. They are accounted worthy to partake of religious rites, but in conjunction with their husbands. This is reproduced almost verbatim. 
We have already seen, as in most barbarous nations, that the, that the women among the Hindus are excluded from sharing in the paternal property. They are by system deprived of education. The polygamy was established custom of the Hindus, we learn from various documents, which are at the same which at the same time conveys no evidence of their domestic gentleness. It is to be observed, besides, that the women have no choice in numerous precepts which respect the guarding of women. Among the Hindus, as in general among the na nations of Asia, since they are emerging from the rudest barbarianism, it seems to have been the practice of every man who possesses sufficient means to keep his women guarded in a state of seclusion. Indian women are totally devoid of delicacy, their language is often gross and disgusting, nor do they feel any more hesitation in expressing themselves before men than they would before their female associates. Their terms of abuse or reproach are indelicate to the utmost degree. I will not disgust the reader by noticing any of them, but I may safely aver that it is not possible for language to express or the imagination to conceive more indecent or grosser images. So, you know, because I was looking at discourse of 6th and 7th grade, I am not going into many other dimensions <clears throat> that are, that, that are uh, prevalent in the writings of James Mill. But in contemporary times, most of the discourse that you find in mainstream academia on Hindus, where there is a certain kind of derision involved, you will find its connection with James Mill. So I will close and in closing what I am saying is that we as scholars, we basically need to deconstruct this entire tradition, this entire, this entire parampara and see how a particular narrative has been fermented and what that narrative is doing to the Indian consciousness at this point in time. Until unless we do this systematic study, I think we will continue to have the problems that we are having in the universities today. So with that I close. Thank you. So I myself, Dr. Nina Bansal from Delhi University. I'm teaching in one of the colleges of Delhi. And uh, I'm so happy to be here. And thanks to you, uh, uh, Professor Singh, you invited me to this lecture. And this, the topic that you talked about is very near and dear to my heart because I'm also working on civil lines. Um, I'm writing a chapter uh, on deconstructing the colonial and reviving the Indic, which is going to be um, uh, coming in one of the books, which is on Indic thought. So I was wondering that uh, US itself has been a colony. <coughs> And still uh, we see the, uh, you know, the discrimination perpetrated in the schools. This is uh, beyond my 
like um, understanding that they have themselves borne the brunt of uh, being colonized but still they are continuing to discriminate other nations still <clears throat> see the the pilgrims you know who came from europe they were colonized for sure but the othering did not happen you know they were still part of the same race right and the othering which james mill is engaging here is basically racial in orientation and origin because the race factor was not working on the pilgrims okay that you do not see the pilgrims you know subjected to a kind of discourse which the indians and hindus were subjected here so when they became independent and when they started you know putting together their own universities <coughs> they basically incorporated or appropriated the discourse of the anglo-saxon world so whatever was being produced in europe that basically traveled to the universities in the united states and the thing is that if you are continually saying that you are encountering a certain kind of people who do not know of any other way other than oppression then the, then you are not going to get the sympathy of the scholars and this is basically what is happening today the scholars most of them they are not familiar with what what actually happened to the indians and the hindus during the colonial period they are not aware of this discourse nobody talks about it and my understanding is that when once you begin to talk about this discourse in conferences what you find is that you are able to align your contentions with with political correctness which is very dominant in academia at this point in time and the moment this conjoining happens then you are not challenged as much and that is the reason that <clears throat> uh, you know we need to critically examine this discourse which is prevalent at this point in time we must you know look at evidence and we must refute uh, the current narrative based on evidence i am not against that but critical examination and deconstruction also is important